from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your host, Kalita Leaquat. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat, and today we're talking with genetic counselors about their genetic diagnoses. Join us as my co-host, Kate Wilson, sits down with Ben Helm, a cardiovascular genetic counselor at the Indiana University School of Medicine in Riley Hospital for Children. Especially with the FH population I've worked with, when they learn that I also have FH and have the family history that looks a lot like theirs, it kind of breaks down these walls between me and the patient. And Devin Schumann, a genetic counselor in the high-risk pregnancy center in Las Vegas, Nevada. It makes every patient matter to me. It gives me a reason to pause and really think through, okay, this might be my fifth patient, but I'm their first GC. Let's take a breath, give them everything they need. You're here for them. They're not here so you can check your boxes. Take it away, Kate. Today we are talking with Benjamin Helm, a cardiovascular genetic counselor with Indiana University School of Medicine. Hi, Ben. How are you doing today? Hey, doing very well. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you here. And we wanted to start off by talking a little bit more about your journey with your genetic diagnosis. I know you've chatted some on Genome Magazine and other areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about your diagnosis? Absolutely. Yeah. So about three years ago is finally and officially diagnosed with familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, what we all call FH for short. So this is a disease. It's actually probably the most common genetic disease across the world, um, but it's actually vastly underrecognized and underdiagnosed. And for those of you who need a refresher from your training or haven't heard of FH before, basically it's a genetic congenital disorder of cholesterol metabolism so that people have an impaired or reduced ability to metabolize and get rid of excess uh, LDL cholesterol from the body. As a result, there's an accelerated atherosclerosis process. That's the process of plaque building up in the arteries, which also leads to an accelerated and early onset form of heart disease. So it's not uncommon to see you know, men in their 20s to 40s uh, with dangerous events like heart attacks or strokes, um, and certainly can affect women too, uh, as early as their 30s, 40s, and early 50s. You said um, it was a more recent diagnosis, so about three years ago. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you came to learn of the diagnosis and how you found out? Yeah, well, it, this actually goes back probably 13 or 14 years. I'd always, always had a suspicion I could have FH, and this goes back to um, I had my first uh, lipid panel done when I was 18 as part of like a college freshman you know, uh, wellness course. And uh, it came back really high. I mean, astronomically high, at least at, at that time. And you know, even before then, I'd known about my family history, which had, uh, unfortunately, a number of, uh, especially men in our family, my mom's side of the family, who had early onset heart disease. You know, an uncle who had his first heart attack at 38, had a few more after that, and eventually needed you know, things like triple and quadruple bypass in his early 40s. My grandfather also passed away pretty early from heart disease. So I'd always had this suspicion for a while, but uh, flash forward now to about three years ago, um, you know, I, I, throughout this time, I was able, not able to actually meet the clinical diagnostic criteria for a diagnosis. And I also met with providers who didn't really know about the disorder and, you know, 
I didn't really take it that seriously and neither did my providers. But, uh, you know, about three years ago, my older brother, who thankfully is fine now, um, you know, he was a healthy 31 year old guy and all, th- all of a sudden for about a month was complaining of chest pain. And, you know, you have a 31 year old healthy male with chest pain, you don't really think of a heart attack necessarily. Um, so it was actually misdiagnosed as possible like pneumonia. Um, long story short, he was found to have 99 and 100% blockages in two coronary arteries. And thankfully, um, you know, because both my father and I reminded him of his family history, he was able to take that to his doctors and say like, hey, there's something serious going on. And that's when they you know, did the full workup and found that he was pretty close to having a heart attack. Um, so had a couple stents placed and you know, was doing well. Um, and once all that event, you know, once that event happened with my brother, I mean, I was able to kind of, you know, of course, check my family history box of having a close relative, you know, a first degree relative who had early onset heart disease. And that's when I took FH way more seriously. Um, but again, I still didn't meet a clinical diagnosis. That's when I said, you know, I might as well just go ahead and send genetic testing for myself. And so I did and came back with a, a pathogenic variant in the LDLR gene consistent with FH. And so now I've been on that journey since, you know, with uh, being diagnosed and being treated for it and also becoming an advocate for it. And it sounds like, you know, this is something you've been aware about, at least family history wise, even prior to doing genetic testing. So has this history, this diagnosis, how has that influenced your work as a genetic counselor? It's kind of like uh, what came first, you know, you having a significant family history, did that influence you to become a genetic counselor or because you've chosen to be a genetic counselor? How has this um, diagnosis influenced your work? Yeah, I thought about that a lot. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, You know, I think that I've always been interested in health and family history and family health. And I think that sort of probably to some degree subconsciously steered me towards an interest in genetics and eventually training to become a genetic counselor. And I literally remember in my interview for grad school, I was talking with um, my the current program director of our program. Um, and I remember telling her in my interview that I thought I might have you know, had FH based on my family history. And you know, so I think that subconsciously it was there the whole time, but it kind of fell off my radar for a number of years um, until my brother's event. But, you know, once I decided to you know, subspecialize in cardiovascular genetics, you know, I started working with the FH population more. And um, then certainly after my diagnosis, um, you know, I, I try to do a lot more work with FH than I, I normally had in the past. Um, but I think that, you know, to answer your question, I think that there definitely was an aspect of my family history, which probably influenced the decision to become a genetic counselor. And then now I think having this diagnosis and trying to advocate more and more for it, it's, it's definitely deepened my work to some degree, you know, especially how I talk to not only patients I see with FH, but also just other, you know, cardiovascular uh, genetic disorders that can present with dangerous cardiac events and um, really, you know, encouraging people to use their family history, use the power of genetic testing to, you know, provide actionable, empowering information about themselves. And so do you feel like that's really kind of how it impacts your counseling um, with these families? Would you say it, it changes uh, how you talk to, you know, all families, all patients with any kind of cardiovascular? Um, do you feel like it hits home more when you're working directly with FH families? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it does a little bit of both. And I've talked with a few colleagues about this. And there was that, you know, the whole debate about, you know, how much self-disclosure should a genetic counselor use and, you know, an appointment with a patient. And it's not like I'm always bringing it up, but when it naturally comes up in a conversation, whether it's I'm seeing a patient or family for FH or some other, you know, cardiovascular disorder, if it comes up naturally, I will say like, Hey, I, I sort of do have a little bit of experience with this. You know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's made 
the conditions I work with, uh, seem like, like they have like a closer proximity. Um, not that I'm like, you know, taking on what a patient's going through or, you know, laying my own emotions into it. But I think that it does, I think it really helps. And I think anecdotally, especially with the FH population I've worked with, when they learn that I also have FH and have the family history that looks a lot like theirs, it it kind of breaks down these walls between me and the patient as like this provider patient division. Um, And we can start talking more authentically. And then I think they also take the condition a lot more seriously when they realize, you know, the provider they're sitting across from has the same thing and had the same struggles. So I think it has influenced to some degree. And I, I, when it's natural, it's not all the time, but intermittently, you know, it does come up uh, that disclosure piece for me. Um, And I think it does help some of these patients, um, you know, take the condition more seriously, but I think it just helps them relate to their healthcare provider. Well, and that you bring up a good point about the self-disclosure, you know, when is it necessary, not necessary? And like you said, being more of a, a, a natural part of the conversation. Are there any challenges that you face being a genetic counselor that has a genetic condition? A couple of different ways, I guess. I think as I've talked with my family a lot more, I think the, the lines get blurred between me as a sibling or a child or a cousin. You know, the, my roles as a family member get blurred with, uh, you know, being a healthcare provider. And I think that sometimes my family has a hard time like telling those apart. Not a, not a bad way, but I think it just happens. But I think the same is true, you know, with any kind of advocacy or public outreach you do is, you know, treading that line between am I a provider right now or am I just another patient with a diagnosis trying to advocate just as these other people are. And, you know, obviously that ties into, um, you know, just some trepidation with like, oh my gosh, does this person think I'm being their genetic counselor right now? It's like, I'm literally just talking to them on the street. I, I kind of want to avoid the liability issues with that. But, you know, I think when those lines get blurred, maybe that presents some challenges, but it hasn't been anything that were, you know, major obstacles necessarily. One thing that you mentioned a lot about is your advocacy work. Can you tell us a little bit about what type of advocacy work you do? Yeah, so I've done a few things. And I mean, some of it is just within our own institution trying to develop better FH programs. So, um, you know, my colleagues and I, uh, Katie Spoonamore, uh, Samantha Fries, when she was with us, uh, Dr. Julie Clary is my lipidologist. Um, we've, we realized there was a huge need, you know, to serve the FH population in at least central Indiana, if not be a statewide resource. So institutionally, we're trying to develop that. And, you know, I have sort of a three to five year plan to develop better pediatric services as well. Um, but, but I think there's so much work to be done. So for the listeners who don't know, FH is one of the CDC's you know, conditions for tier one genomic applications, meaning that it's a significant enough public health burden or public health need that you know, we should all be working on these larger projects for FH. I mean, it's super common, you know, about one in 220 people have it in the general population, um, less than, you know, certainly less than 10%. And in the United States, it might be even closer to less than 1% of people have actually been diagnosed with it. And it's a severe disease. But the good side to all of this is that it's an exceptionally treatable disease. And so I think that we need to work better on, you know, raising awareness for what FH is, how to diagnose it, um, how to properly treat it. And this is something that all the work we do now, especially for younger individuals with FH, you know, young adults and even younger, is going to potentially prevent cardiovascular disease two, three, and four decades from now. And we're talking about true preventative precision medicine. So the the big catch, I think, is that we need to have better recognition and awareness. And so, you know, I reached out to the FH Foundation, which, you know, I'll certainly go on the record and say that's one of the best patient advocacy groups and foundations I've ever, you know, had experience with. Um, They're doing a lot of work on these issues because they realize that, again, just 
the under recognition of it and the you know suboptimal treatment in some cases of people who have it. I mean, this is a huge need. So, um, you know, I, I offered my time to be an advocate for awareness, you know, for the FH foundation. I want to do, you know, bigger public health uh, projects and impacts. And um, a lot of this is also driven, you know, my desire to also pursue even more advanced training in public health and epidemiology. So, I mean, there's so many things that we can do right now in terms of FH and, you know, for a genetic disease, it's fairly low hanging fruit. I mean, we have a disease that's pretty easy to diagnose as long as people recognize it. And it's the treatment's actually quite good, you know, in most cases, um, and we can do a good job and a better, much better job of actually preventing disease um, like my brothers, for example. So long story short, I think that, you know, both within our own institution, I want to develop better services and, and have our pediatricians and our cardiologists and even adult providers recognize it more. Um, my father is also a family physician. And so I've done some work even locally with not only his office, but his local you know, community hospital, you know, doing some education programs for them. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's too common of a disease that we can't rely on subspecialist genetic counselors or subspecialist lipidologists to handle everything, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I'm a huge advocate of all the education and outreach needed to just have better public health impact for FH. Well, and I think you bring up something important about, you know, kind of calling it low-hanging fruit or something that there's testing for, uh, there's treatments for. And and I think about you, you know, being in the cardiovascular space, it um, makes sense to reach out and try to expand or grow some of these clinics. What can, you know, genetic counselors that are not practicing in the cardiovascular space um, and that may not have access to a clinic like yours, um, given that, you know, I think cardio is still kind of, uh, quote unquote, up and coming in the genetics world. You know, what can a, a general, you know, prenatal or oncology genetic counselor do to increase education and awareness, you know, among their medical community? It's a great question. And I think a lot of it's just going to be so, there's so much variability between all providers, including genetic counselors, but certainly institutional variability that I've seen in, in how they address FH. And I think for just, I mean, everybody, I mean, prenatal, cancer, general, um, you know, you name it. I mean, you're going to come across FH. You're going to come across family histories that look like FH. And I think that, again, you know, there's too few of the subspecialist people to, to really handle it all or have the capability to. Um, so I think that, you know, a few things that I've, at least in my personal experience, you know, in my genetic counselor training, and I can't say that we've changed our, our uh, training program enough, genetic counseling training program enough to actually incorporate a lot more cardiovascular genetics. We have a whole course now. We cover a lot of material on FH. But when I trained, I mean, I think that I only had maybe a handful of slides or less on a single lecture about FH. And nobody really, and we, we just weren't really exposed to how common it was the significant public health need um, and just the power that genetic counselors can bring to the evaluation and care of entire families. And so I think that one training programs can have better, you know, and more information about, you know, not only the CDC tier one conditions, but specifically FH. I think the other thing that I've seen is uh, because of either too little of exposure to FH or for various other reasons, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about FH so I know that um, I've heard, you know, again, anecdotally, just people think of FH as, you know, quote unquote, adult onset disease, where people weren't willing to do much with a pediatric population or teenagers, you know, um, and I think that's a misconception. And I think another misconception is people thinking that, um, you know, oh, well, you don't need a, you don't need a genetic counselor, a genetic test to 
to see these folks. I mean, they just need to have a lipid panel with their doctors. Well, and that's true. I mean, lipid panels are excellent at diagnosing or at least screening people that might be at risk for FH, but they have limitations. I mean, I'm an example of that. My lipid panels alone weren't enough to get me a diagnosis. But in addition to, I think that as we tell people, hey, like that's an adult onset disease and, you know, that's a lipid disorder and you can just do a cholesterol test. Well, we're sending those patients back to providers who I think all the data show that a lot of providers just don't have good awareness or recognition for FH, um, let alone if they actually get the lipid panels done according to current guidelines. So I think there's a number of ways, but I think that, you know, at a basic level, um, training programs should definitely increase their content on FH. Um, and then I think the second thing is I think a lot of genetic counselors do need some of these misconceptions addressed. Um, and I think that we have to use all tools available to us to actually diagnose people. And I don't think that, you know, all FH patients need to be sent to a dedicated FH clinic or, you know, they need to see a dedicated FH genetic counselor, but all of us collectively need to get better with it because we're, I mean, I bet all of us in this conversation can count, you know, in double digits, you know, the numbers of early onset heart disease pedigrees we've seen are triple digits in some cases. I'm curious to know your thoughts changing gears from talking about it on the professional side, what is it like on the patient side? Um, how has it been for you? I'm guessing being an extremely savvy patient on your condition, but how has that been not being the one who's the healthcare professional? You know, I, I don't think it's been too big of an issue. I mean, I have a great cardiologist, Dr. Clary, you know, within our system. And, um, you know, obviously she knew my background and knew I was going to be probably the atypical patient, you know, coming with a lot of knowledge and, you know, and, and I'm sure she probably gets annoyed sometimes when I email her the latest papers that come out and whatnot, but, you know, she's a really great partner to have. And I think that she's, she knows my background and she works with me on an individual level and, you know, she knows my needs, which, you know, I, I want to see the latest science. I want to see the data. Um, but ultimately I have to also, you know, trust her and I do trust her in terms of her care for me and recommendations for me. Yeah. I think, I think maybe at some, at some points, people like us, right? Like healthcare professionals who have a disease or condition that they're managed for. I think that probably some providers see them as, you know, an annoyance or whatever. But I think that honestly, I mean, coming from my own personal experience, I love to have a really savvy patient, really empowered patient asking lots of good questions because it makes for much better interactions, I think, as opposed to the opposite of that. A lot of us having the backgrounds that we do, um, you know, we do like to have those higher level conversations. And I think it's fantastic that you found a provider um, that understands that and, and works with you on understanding the, the latest um, uh, data and research that's out there. I really enjoyed talking with you today, but before we wrap it up, I just wanted to know if there was anything else that you wanted to share. Yeah, I think there's, there's probably a couple things. Um, number one, I always want to emphasize kind of four main points with FH. And this also is something the FH foundation, um, which I encourage everybody to check out as a resource, um, four things about FH that really need to be emphasized to everybody. Um, number one, it's common. You know, we're talking about one out of, you know, every 220 people or so. Um, two, it's, underdiagnosed, severely so, and we can do a much better job about identifying cases. Number three, that this is a severe disease. I mean, if it's undiagnosed and untreated, we're talking about people having, you know, 20 fold increased risk of early onset dangerous cardiovascular disease compared to the general population. But the fourth thing is that this is a very treatable disease. And, you know, I think that the treatment is most effective when we start at younger points in life. I think the healthcare system has done a good job about responding uh, or at least 
providing reactive medicine, you know, to, to people like my brother where they've presented with, you know, dangerous event and then we go back and fix it. But if we start, you know, 15 years, 20 years before what my brother, you know, my, when my brother's event happened, we can actually do a much better job of preventing the need for that stuff. Uh, talking about stent placements or bypass surgery or what have you. Um, so those are the four things I always emphasize. And the last piece is I always want to emphasize the work of the FH foundation. Again, it's one of the, the best patient advocacy and outreach groups that I've ever worked with. And they do a lot of tremendous work about, you know, again, education and awareness, but also things like really fighting for policy changes and in terms of making sure health insurance companies are covering the medication that's been proven to be effective for FH, Uh, working on genetic testing recommendations and policies, creating an ICD-10 code, you know, for FH. And so if anybody has, you know, questions, or at least anybody in our professional community, they're always welcome to reach out to me or some of the other cardiovascular genetic counselors working with FH. But I would say one of the number one web resources you can go to is the FH Foundation. And they do tremendous, tremendous work. Well, thank you, Ben. And thank you for sharing the story. We really appreciate it. Interested in learning more about the Familial Hypercholesterolemia Foundation? Head online to thefhfoundation.org or connect with Ben on Twitter with the handle at bmhelm to learn more. Next up, I'm sitting down with Devin Schumann. So today we're talking with Devin Schumann, who's a prenatal genetic counselor in Las Vegas, and she's going to tell us more about her journey with her genetic diagnosis. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is great. Well, so I wanted to jump right in. Um, we've talked a little bit um, on our own about your genetic diagnosis, and I know that you've shared some things on Twitter. So it seems that you're, you're pretty open about it. So we, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more um, about your diagnosis. Yeah, no, I've always been pretty comfortable talking about it. Never seemed like something to hide. But I have mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome which is just a super fancy way of saying the instructions for the piece of my cell that makes energy, one of the letters is missing. So I don't have enough of the instructions and my body doesn't have enough energy to function. And so then you can get all sorts of symptoms. Essentially, anything that takes energy to work has the ability to not work. And thank you for that genetic counselor explanation. I like that. So one of the things that uh, I want to talk to you a little bit more about was given that it's um, mitochondrial, we know that people who have those kinds of conditions tend to go on some types of diagnostic odyssey, that it takes a while um, for a diagnosis. Was that the same case for you? I owe my brother a lot. So I have a brother that's two years older than me. He went on the odyssey. It took him seven, nine years to find an answer. And I just sort of hung on his coattails. At the end of it all, they looked at me and went, hmm, her symptoms aren't normal. Maybe she shouldn't be missing so much school. Let's test her too. It sounds like he had some more severe effects or or severe um, symptoms and that you were feeling more towards the side of of low energy or missing school a lot. So when 
were you actually diagnosed? Yeah. So I was first, they told me it was suspected mitochondrial disease when I was 16 because my brother was 18, had a muscle biopsy. They found the answer for him. Then I waited till I was done with school so I didn't have to miss any more for surgery. Had the muscle biopsy before college and got the answer right when I was going into college for my first year. But I showed symptoms, I think, at 13. They just kept thinking I had mono over and over and over again. So after you got the, I guess, uh, quote-unquote, official diagnosis, how did that shape you or change you? Did it, did it really change anything for you as a person? I actually think that it changed a lot. So... I mean, I was a teenager when I had symptoms, right? So everything's a little wonky when you're a teenager and you just kind of roll with it because everything's changing. But then when I found that answer, I went to a Mito conference and I met other teens with it. And it turned from like, oh yeah, you've got these weird symptoms that just makes you even more of an odd teenager to, oh, this is a diagnosis. This is going to impact your future. But also here's a community. And here's people that you're around who get it, who have the same thing. And I think that really opened so many more doors into even the disabled community at large and an identity that can come with that. And that, through all that, led me to genetic counseling, which was a great outcome. Well, and that was actually going to be my next question is, did having the diagnosis influence you to become a genetic counselor? Um, It sounds like it was really mainly the support um, and the advocacy community that maybe influenced you? Yeah, so I went into undergrad thinking I wanted to do some sort of medicine because my life had been a lot of doctors lately and it was something I knew and I was comfortable with and I liked helping other people with it. But then through the Mito community, being a student, everyone would always ask me all their questions and all their genetic questions And I realized how much I love helping families through the process of finding a diagnosis and understanding what's going on when they see their doctors. And so when I heard of genetic counseling, because of my diagnosis, I think it all just clicked instantly as this is a path that you can do, you know, without 12 years of med school and get even more of an impact than I thought was possible before in helping other people. So did you ever see a genetic counselor as a patient? Technically, yes. I've seen at least two genetic counselors when they came in to take a quick pedigree, either for the purpose of research or for ordering confirmation genetic testing. So I saw them like once or twice, but at that point I was already a GC. So it was kind of odd because I was like sort of doing the pedigree for them So I don't think I ever truly got the GC experience. How do you think that influenced you as a genetic counselor, you know, being that person that can help patients on the journey rather than see them after the fact? I think it really influences me a lot. I really, I think it's made the job not just into sort of the daily grind, but it makes every patient matter to me. It gives me a reason to pause and really think through, okay, this might be my fifth patient, but I'm their first GC. Let's take a breath, give them everything they need. You're here for them. 
they're not here so you can check your boxes. And I think that's really changed how I view my job and how I view the time commitment that goes into it and sort of my approach to the day-to-day details of it. And how else do you think having a genetic condition, you know, influences not only your counseling, but just your point of view when it comes to medicine um, and treating patients? I'm not sure I could separate the two if I tried. I mean, you know, when you find a diagnosis as a teenager, that's when you're figuring out who you are as a person, let alone your medical perspective. So I think having a diagnosis has infiltrated itself into every aspect of who I am in medicine, definitely, as much as, you know, my mom cringes when I say I'm disabled because she's like, no, but your disability is not you. You're more than that. It's like, yeah, I am, but it's a great part of who I am. And I think it really does influence how I approach the medical community of, you know, patient first, trust the patients when they tell you things, if it's at all possible, you're there for them, you know, believe the patient first, they're the top priority. Well, and I think that's um, very helpful for for those of us to hear. You know, I think a lot of us get into this field for patient advocacy, um, but then sometimes it is a challenge to keep that focus, you know, day to day. One of the things that I did want to ask you about are about challenges. So um, we know with some of the mitochondrial conditions, you know, that we talked about lack of energy as well as some other symptoms. Um, how does, what are those types of challenges and how does it affect um, your work as a counselor? Yeah, I mean, I think challenges are endless for all of us, you know? So for me, I don't always have the energy I'd like. I have daily migraines. So, you know, I might be in decent amounts of pain when I'm talking to a patient. I need to sleep a lot. I have medical appointments. I have to find time to take off of work to go to. And I think juggling all of that, it's not always super easy. And it's something I really worked on, especially in grad school, figuring out. But I think, you know, when you take a step back, a parent is juggling so many more balls than that when they're being a GC and a mom or a dad, you know, and I think we all have those challenges. I just sort of lucked out that when I was figuring out my pace for life, I was forced to prioritize. I learned what do I have to put first? You know, what am I choosing to put my energy towards? And can I make sure it's something like genetic counseling that I get a reward from, not just a paycheck? And so I think that's been a very important part of the decisions I make. Am I doing a job that's going to satisfy me on multiple levels of fulfillment so that I'm not quote unquote, wasting my energy in a nine to five. Well, and it sounds like you've had to be um, mindful about self-care and like you said, prioritizing. So making sure that um, you're taking care of yourself and looking for ways to renew uh, energy. I did want to shift gears a little bit because I know you're extremely involved in advocacy. Um, So I thought um, you could tell us a little bit about the current state of awareness or um, the advocacy group that you work with um, related to your condition or conditions like yours. 
Yeah, so I work with an organization called the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. They are an org that's mostly based in the United States and has a conference every single year along with walkathons and smaller one or half day conferences that are more for doctors and education in local areas. And I lucked into finding them my first year. I went to my first conference like a year after I was diagnosed and I've gone every single year since. So I think I've been to seven or eight now. And I think it's honestly life-changing as a patient to go to a conference and meet other people with it and then to do advocacy work like I run an online group for teens and young adults, just knowing that I'm connecting people who are making friendships and some of them have even started dating each other internationally. Just knowing that you're helping people find other people is amazing. And then the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation also does Day on the Hill, which is where we all go to DC, the conference is there every other year. And anyone who has the energy to do it goes up to Capitol Hill and meets with their senators and tries to help with that. And so I think, you know, it doesn't, we're not going to change the world, but we're going to, we can make little impacts that have a huge impact on our lives, like getting supplements covered and other things like that. And that can help sort of retain your autonomy and put some control back in a life that you don't honestly always have a lot of control over. And having that sense of I'm doing something plus that sense of community, I think, at least personally, can really transform a diagnosis into something more than just what's on a sheet of paper. So I always at least try to make my patients aware if there are family groups. They don't have to go do it. It might not be the right moment for them, but just knowing that it's there for in the future, if they pause and think that they might want that, I think is really important. Well, and I think that's a wonderful thing to to be aware of is when you're working with a patient um, who has um, a diagnosis or a chronic health condition, if you can find some support for them. Um, you've talked a little bit about a few different, you know, tips for practicing genetic counselors about, you know, uh, putting the patient first and listening to the patient. And then you've talked about how important it has been um, on the patient side to be plugged into a community. Um, what else can practicing genetic counselors do to support patients um, when they're um, receiving these types of diagnoses or when they're coming back in, you know, just for a yearly checkup? I think there are endless ways we can always be better, but I think A couple of the things that stand out to me most is, first of all, like honesty. You know, these patients are in it for the long haul. So building trust and, you know, being honest when insurance is maybe going to take two or three months to get back to you and they might not approve it and it might be a long process and sort of not saying you have to tell them every nut and bolt of the detail, but trying to be as honest as possible, I think really helps. Even when you're saying things like, you know, your symptoms don't totally make sense to me, admitting that you might not know something, but you're going to go look it up or you're going to try to find out, or maybe it's something where all you can tell them is, you know, it's going to be a couple year process. Maybe in a couple years we'll find something, we'll understand this better, but for now we don't. And I think that's really important. 
for both sides of the equation. And on that note about self-care, I mean, genetic counselors have to take care of themselves, you know, especially in things like peds, tend to be overworked, work long hours. If you're not taking care of yourself and taking that moment to pause and breathe and maybe have another coffee before you go into your next set of patients, you know, you're not going to be your best self. And they may or may not notice, but, you know, you might not be offering everything you could. And if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of your patients. I think it's important to realize, you know, you can't be perfect. They're going through a lot. They might be stressed. But pause, take care of yourself. Don't hate yourself if the appointment doesn't go perfectly. So it sounds like, you know, transparency, giving more information, even if that information is not related to the condition, but really just, you know, how diagnoses happen or the different, you know, steps involved, because it it can be a complicated, um, you know, procedure journey that, um, again, like you said, the patients aren't familiar with. This is their first time going through it. Um, Well, I really have uh, enjoyed chatting with you, and this has been extremely um, insightful. Is there anything else that you wanted to share um, with the listeners? I mean, since the audience is mostly genetic counselors, I always want everyone to remember mitochondrial disease is not always inherited from the mother. It's most often autosomal recessive. So when you draw those pedigrees, look for a couple modes of inheritance. Want to learn more about mitochondrial disease? Head online to umdf.org or connect with Devin on Twitter with the handle at Devin Schumann, S-H-U-M-A-N, to learn more. That concludes today's episode of the NSGC podcast series. Thank you for joining us as we listen to Ben and Devin's stories about their journeys to a genetic diagnosis. Are you interested in connecting with genetic counselors who have genetic conditions? NSGC members can head online to www.nsgc.org forward slash podcasts for more resources. Don't forget, Genetic Counselor Awareness Day is on Thursday, November 8th. Head online to www.nsgc.org for resources to help you celebrate the day and spread the word on the important work you do every day. And listeners, we have some exciting news. Join us back here on November 1st for a special edition episode of the NSGC podcast series, where we'll cover everything you need to know to get ready for GC Awareness Day with special guest Jennifer Hoskovic. We cannot wait to share this bonus episode with you. Have an idea for an episode? Visit us online at www.nsgc.org forward slash podcasts to submit your idea today. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. We'll see you next time.